we went out, ambushed, killed anything that moved every month for 12 months. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is the first episode of Season 6. Since 2017, Life on the Line has brought you the stories of Australian military veterans. This is our 242nd podcast and our 175th veteran we've featured on the show. In all that time, we've brought you stories from World War II to the modern era. Today's chat is with a Special Forces veteran of the Vietnam War, Harry Nicholas Howlett, or Nick Howlett, as he's known. You can listen to this and all our other episodes on your favourite podcast app, Spotify, YouTube, and our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Nick Howlett served in the Special Air Service Regiment. He was deployed with 3 Squadron SAS to Vietnam in 1969-70. to In the first instalment of a two-part conversation, Nick spoke to Angus Horden about his military career, joining the regiment, and his time in the jungle. I'm Angus Horden, and today I'm speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Howlett, known as Nick to his friends. Nick, thanks very much for joining us today. Angus, thank you so much for the invitation. And Alex, who kicked it off um, over a year ago, again, thank you. I wasn't quite ready back then, but um, it's wonderful to be able to share a few um, bits of uh, history, I guess, that's not in the record books. It's a funny thing, um, you're talking to us on your converted fishing trawler down on the Tamar down in Tassie. And a lot of people sort of don't know where everyone is right now, but you certainly are in a very beautiful and tranquil part of the world. We live aboard, have been living aboard boats for about seven years, tried land for six months, didn't work. So six months ago, we bought this converted um, fishing trawler. We're living aboard and we're on the Tamar River, which is about an hour's drive north of Launceston in northern Tasmania. Two things I was told, never buy a wooden boat, never buy an ex-trawler. So what have I got? A wooden ex-trawler. I'd like to kick off by a bit of a background. I understand you were originally born in London, but you come to Australia and start your school and your schooling sort of jumps around a bit. You're at Artarman, you then go to Knox here in Wurrunga in Sydney, where, um, you know, Alex and myself went to school. And consequently, I understand school had a lot of impression upon you. Yes, it did. It, it was a privilege to go there. And um, I always acknowledge my parents made tremendous sacrifices to put my sister and myself into um, decent schools. And Plus, we lived on the North Shore. Before we go on to the, uh, the Knox influence, the born in London bit was to uh, an Australian uh, mother who was a lieutenant during the Blitz, and my father was a lieutenant colonel during the Blitz, and they were both there in London um, from 1939 onwards. 
So my sister and I were born through the Blitz. So if you can imagine being raised back in Sydney um, years later by a lieutenant mother, a lieutenant colonel father, Knox, cadets, cubs, scouts. I mean, the Army Reserve, I, I certainly wasn't going to end up as a bookkeeper. But guess what? I'm a bookkeeper. <laughs> you may be a bookkeeper now, but what was the influence of your, your, your parents obviously being military, having gone through the Blitz the hardest of times, you know, in the Second World War, certainly in Britain. Um, what was the upbringing like with your folks? Oh, wonderful childhood. Apart from being blessed with good genes, living in a, a, a rugged environment certainly helped. When, you, when I say, you know, Coolaroo Road, Lane Cove, I stepped out the back door into Lane Cove National Park, and we know how big that is. And that was my training ground from the age of um, about six onwards, um, right through uh, my teens. So how to make bushcraft work and all that sort of thing. Then going into the cadets and the teachers at Knox, in that time, many people were Second World War veterans. And the rules and the guidelines were very clear cut, very straight. You tried to muck around, but you, you just had to make sure you didn't get caught. But the influence of the teachers there at Knox, I couldn't have been in better hands. Some were brutal. Corporal punishment was certainly still in. A rubber Bunsen hose was used and you go up to the swimming pool and change for, for sport and everyone would check out each other's butts, not for what people might think today, but you had three three or four welts across your cheeks but this bloody bunsen hose wrapped around <laughs> and left welts on your hips uh, you know, this is what i mean um some of these teachers were suffering and having now known what uh, ptsd is like that's what they had and they tried to keep it under control but every now and then they'd reach a point where as students would push their buttons and you'd always take one for the team. Woodwork class with Ben Bolt there in the manual arts shed next to the swimming pool. Someone threw a lump of wood across the room into the wastebasket and Ben Bolt, who did that? Who did that? Who did that? And I said, oh, I just put a bit of wood on the bench. You'll do. Whack, whack, whack. <laughs> I, I had my, my stripes. Ben Bolt died a year later, I think cancer at the time, but we're talking 1956, 57 or thereabouts. In particular, you, you mentioned there was a guy called Jock McConnell who was in charge of discipline who instilled some very strong values, and I believe he was involved in the Cadet Corps. Can you also share that experience with boxing with Jock and also your Cadet Corps time? The worst news I received as a junior at Knox was everyone had to go into the boxing ring to show their mettle, to prove that they were a man. And I have never shrunk away from any sort of challenge and always been prepared to stand up for the right things or give way where it's, it's necessary. And this was one situation I strongly objected to because I couldn't box. And I knew enough about boxing to know that a, a good technician give you a bit of curry. All I knew was that you put your fists in front of your chest or in front of your face. So I approached Jock McConnell and I said, sir, I'm sorry, but I... Uh, I'm not going to join the, the boxing. First, I'm, uh, I know nothing about boxing, but secondly, I don't think there's any reason for me to prove by going into a ring that I'm a, a, a worthy young man. So standing next to me was a fellow called Alan Pike. He was a classmate of mine. So McConnell didn't say a word, F you McConnell. I went in and to teach me a lesson, he 
first round, he put me up against a New South Wales Police Boys Junior champion boxer. And the guy went whack, whack, whack. Nose was spread over my face. There was blood on the canvas. And I never forgave him to this day. Anyway, that's McConnell. And how about the Cadet Corps experiences? I remember Tony Gifford was there who actually taught me cricket. Um, he was a major of the Cadet Corps and, and I believe a real role model and mentor to you. Oh, absolutely. Angus got undying admiration for that man. He certainly gave me a little bit of extra uh, mentoring through the cadet time. I think I was about to make corporal or something like that. He obviously saw that I thoroughly enjoyed the cadets, which I did. Wonderful time. Um, couldn't wait for those Mondays. We put the kilts on. The big moment was the Singleton Army Camp. And off we trotted. Uh, I think we were all of 14 by the time. There were two things we did was Fairbridge Farm for the, uh, the foster kids care. We'd go there for um, a couple of weeks. And the other was the cadet camp at Singleton. And that was where I really loved the whole idea of military, lying on the rifle range um, or doing field exercises at Singleton. Yeah. And you, you, you would have been firing 303s, I imagine, then? Oh, of course. It was um, Blanco webbing. Polished brass, 303s. I had a 1914 made 303. Cadets were great. So, Nick, with the schooling and the cadets and the great mentoring of some good teachers, putting aside the adverse boxing um, experiences with Jock, um, actually, just before I leave Jock, I actually knew Jock, and you may not be aware, but um, he was run over by a tank in the Western Desert and was captured and, um, uh, and in a German field dressing. Uh, he actually met Rommel, who came in to meet uh, all the Allied uh, POWs. So, as you said before, a lot of these men went through the war and had scars, and a lot went into teaching afterwards. And as you said, you know, not all of them perhaps handled it in hindsight as well as could be handled today. But still, I'm heartened by the lovely experience you had with Tony Gifford, and I personally remember Tony, so I, I like you totally appreciate how a good mentor can mean so much. And Nick, look, moving on, you, you finish your school time and can you talk about how your dad gets posted to Melbourne, so the family moves to Melbourne and you start with the ES&A Bank. So I think you need to explain to our listeners who that bank is. Right, the ES&A Bank, the English, Scottish and Australian Bank, or Eat, Sleep and Argue, Joining the bank in those days, and at the same time I joined the Army Reserve, the bank taught me how to drink. There was a thing called six o'clock swill in Melbourne, six o'clock closing, all alcohol outlets, pubs and that had to close at six o'clock. So if we closed the bank at three, we didn't leave there really until about five. Down to the pub in, um, I, I think we, uh, what's that pub on the corner of Jackson's, Jackson's pub? I'm, I'm a Sydney guy, I'm sorry. I'm oh. not. Well, anyway, I'm not, I'm not a good Melbourne and, fella. And you would into it. And at 10 to 6, they would line up schooners. And I'd have four schooners in front of me at 10 to 6. And I'm only a slight guy and, and, and I'm a two-pot screamer. You'd then swill these down. And the more you swilled, the, more, the worse it tasted. Till we realised the bar staff were starting to clean the lines at 10 to 6. Yeah. <laughs> so... Young and Jackson, that was the pub. So, 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 Nick, can you explain why they were closing the pubs at six o'clock? Oh, I think it was a hangover from the temperance movement or, or something of that nature. 
but you, you anyone from Sydney around the, the North Shore area would remember the um, Great Northern Hotel on the corner of Mowbray yep. Road. Yep. Yeah, been there many times. Yep, in, in uh, about 1948, 49, when uh, we'd been in Sydney a year, and in the early 50s, all the returned soldiers in their indeed mob suits would swill out right up into the, uh, just to the extent of the perimeter of the, uh, the front garden there at the Great Northern. And if you happen to be going past around quarter to six or something like that, yeah, um, it was noisy and, uh, and it, it flowed. But at the same time, to get over the monotony of being a bank teller, uh, I joined the Army Reserve about the same time in, I think it was late 62, and um, my life really took off after that. Let's talk about you joining the Army Reserve because you joined the Commando Regiment in Melbourne. So there's one in Sydney and there's one in Melbourne. You could have joined any Army Reserve unit or, for that matter, Navy or Air Force, but why did you pick the Commandos and what was involved in joining them? I think it was um, post-World War II movies and the like where they portrayed early Special Forces-type actions what was the Guns of Navarone, I think, was one yeah, great where one. Eagles there. But yeah. they, 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 these are later, but those early ones. And I had a fascination with stealth and quiet operations, fight and run away and live to fight another day. And that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt I had more control if I'm going to join the Army and there's a, an end result of that eventually. Might as well do it on my terms. So commandos it was. And... Uh, don't, um, I always attribute that back to that Lane Cove National Park upbringing. So that, that was 10 years of running rampant wild in the bush with no one to pull you back. Um, Chatswood Golf Comp, the, the golf course, had a huge sewerage pipe going across the fairway. It was, oh, it was about 200 feet up in the air. We would run along the top of that and then take a flying leap at the barb spikes at the other end so that we got around them and hanging on for dear life. It's sort of like in your backyard, you're 30 metres up a tree, hanging onto a branch with one hand and saying, look, mum, one hand. <laughs> and dear mother, the mother of four children, that had a lot to do with my enjoyment. And then, of course, a lot of qualifications came out of Army Reserve. So let's talk about the Commando Regiment. I mean, a lot of guys and girls we've spoken to, those that have joined Special Forces have done so really because... To be frank, they've wanted to train and be with the best. And certainly as far as the Army Reserve unit goes, you know, that was the elite unit to join. If you could get in, it was certainly no shoe in. Can you talk about how much time it took, you know, to get qualified in your training hours and, you know, the weekend activities and the camps that you went on? I loved it so much. Uh, it was every Thursday evening. One weekend a month was the minimum requirement and 100 days a year to the total training. You could do 200 days a year, but it'd be the other 100 would be unpaid. It was rare if I ever missed a parade down there. I think being a relatively lightweight person with a pretty good power weight to ratio that I enjoyed in, in those days, you, you could almost leap tall buildings with a single bound, or that's how, what you felt you could do. The big six foot two guys uh, weighed 200 pounds, you know, look like Arnie Schwarzenegger, they were hopeless. And I certainly wouldn't have encouraged it. It's a mental thing, mental toughness. I was a long distance runner at Knox. Absolutely love long distance runners. So endurance, mental endurance, uh, 
physically fit, strong skeletal structure. Um, and I've managed to prove that a few times, but the end result is you get away with a lot more than say um, someone of a larger size. You did all the various courses and you were doing parachute training as well, I understand. Part of um, Green Beret qualification at two commando company, just on a technical note, there was one commando company, two commando company, there was no commando regiment until years later. Mm. So one commando, two commando were um, Army Reserve command, um, companies. Uh, and incidentally, a lot of my friends from two commando and people who I met in one commando ended up uh, in SAS with me, um, soldiers and officers. Yeah, the parachuting side, enjoyed it, loved it. Basic course in 1963, and then 64, an advanced parachute stick commander. That's where you, you're in charge of a stick of um, parachutists. Um, so I had these uh, water, uh, shallow water diving, climbing, roping, small arms, small craft, um, stick commander. I had all these special forces qualifications before I even joined the army. So um, when I did join the army, sort of I was the only guy with parachute wings on and, and that sort of thing, which made you a bit of a target. But uh, anyway, I was on my way. So it would have been a natural progression for you leaving the boredom of the bank and following on a full-time basis your army service into, as you say, the regular army. Can you talk about your first unit that you joined? Joining as a private soldier in the regular army was, was being trained as a reinforcement to go to Vietnam in um, late 65. We were, we were almost on our way. But in the preceding months, I had applied for the SAS regiment based on my commando qualifications. And I applied to become an officer at the from the officer cadet school at Portsea. And all three postings came through at the same time. So in the same week, I was posted to Vietnam, posted to SAS Regiment and posted to OCS Portsea, and I had to choose one. I chose Portsea, graduated as a second lieutenant, went straight across to SAS Regiment, and then went off to Vietnam. So all three choices eventuated. Um, of the 100 reinforcements that went to Vietnam, I think five were killed, um, about 10 seriously wounded. I've lost touch with the others, but they went straight into battle. Many of them ended up in um, Battle of Long Tan. So that was the cohort that I was with. And I got um, rescued into Portsea, then SAS. Um, going over to uh, SAS December 1966 was a highlight of my life. I had achieved it. I had graduated, posted to Swanbourne Barracks in Western Australia, given command of a 33-man um, troop, SAS troop. And it's like a, you may hear often of a new platoon commander joining the infantry company, and everyone said, oh, no, he, here comes this guy. We've got to call him sir, but uh, we've got to make sure he stays on the rails. And they've got a platoon sergeant to look after. I had four seasoned sergeants. They'd all been to Borneo, when was that, 64, 65? They'd all had one tour of Vietnam in 1966. One of them was called the Troop Sergeant, that was um, Johnny Robinson. And then the other three each had a patrol and I had the fifth patrol. So the four sergeants each had a five-man patrol and I had my own five-man patrol. So you were the troop commander responsible for the 30-odd the troops. Plus, you also had the responsibility of preparing your own and training your own patrol for combat. 
that was hardcore learning. You're an officer. Um, admittedly, you had been qualified through the commandos, so you were far more, should I say, reputable or, or authoritative than the average guy because of that training. And then you join a unit and you technically outrank the sergeants, obviously. But we, we all know it's the sergeants in the army, it's the chiefs in the Navy, et cetera, that really run the army without which it wouldn't operate. I always find it a bit funny how, you know, you, you turn up to do a job, but, you know, there, there are these sergeants who are imminently more qualified and experienced in doing this. So how did you find working with these guys when they take you and you're literally like a rookie to them? We had a lot of newly commissioned lieutenants coming into the regiment because we had to build up SAS squadrons for rotation through Vietnam. Depending on who you were and where you came from made a huge difference. Mm. My best friend for life, Brigadier Chris Roberts, was the other brand new lieutenant out of Royal Military College. Terry Nolan, second lieutenant, one commando company, uh, retired as a brigadier. Because I came in with climbing, diving, small craft, you know, I, I knew which end of a barrel the, the bad stuff came out. So Sergeant John Robinson came up to me and he whispers in my little pink shell-like ear, says, morning, skipper, welcome to the troop. You're the skipper, but I'll quietly show you how we do things around here. And that's how it was for the next three years. The biggest mentor and friend in that unit at that time was um, John Robson. Went on to one, uh, win a Distinguished Conduct Medal, did an extraordinary action uh, into a VC camp and um, absolutely wonderful man. We shared a tent for the whole year. Our missions were every month we'd get a warning order at three days notice that we're going out on patrol. The patrol would be for anywhere between five and 10 days, depending on the mission. The size of the patrol would either be mostly five-man patrol, thought you wanted to do something bigger, you'd, you'd take 10. So you, you'd grab the cooks, the bottle washers, the signalers and all that sort of thing because everyone there had qualified for the Sandy Beret, right? They were all technically SAS troopers, but they were in their core specialties like the armourer, cook, the medic and all that sort of thing, and the signalers in particular. So for the 10-man patrols, they used to pick the best out of them and kit them up and say, right, we're going off to do some work. We would then go out for five or 10 days come back, hot debrief, like within a couple of hours of getting back debrief, and that's important regarding what happened with Special Forces in Afghanistan. Hot debrief, and the whole patrol was debriefed in front of the squadron commander, Reg Beasley, at the time. We said, no, Skipper, it wasn't like that. I saw this and this and this. So we got the record right. We then get paralytic in the mess uh, to cope with what we had done, and then we'd get the next warning order. So we went out ambushed, killed anything that moved every month for 12 months. First time was hard. Well, I mean, as they shook up your whole system. But thereafter, you see, and, and I noticed that as troop commander, because I was responsible for my troop in there in Nui Dat, you had to monitor what was going on, look for little signs where things were getting off the rails and bring it back into line. And it was thanks to these four sergeants, Chris Jennison was another one that comes to mind, said, Chris, Billy Campbell's giving, giving us a bit of grief. Have a chat to him. He's one of your patrol members. Billy might end up with a thick nose and a black eye later, but um, if, if it was serious, if it was warranted serious, but we're all under extreme duress. The only release was um, booze. I can say that drugs, to my knowledge, never appeared in our camp. And then you become brutalised. And that stays right up to, say, R&R. So we've been in country seven months, eight months and 
you're given five days rest and recreation either to an overseas port or to, um, in my case, I went to Sydney because I got an extra day. If you flew into Sydney and flew out of Sydney, you got an extra day. One particular patrol I want to address, I had just finished this particular troll. Two days later, I was on a plane heading for Sydney. The timing of my rest and recreation in Sydney was timed around my brother-in-law's wedding. Five days later, I'm on a plane back to Tonsonoop, helicoptered or caribou up to um, Nui Dap, and I get a warning order as I arrive. And when I got back to Sydney for those five days, I had one day with my wife, Jennifer, the next three, three days with the bloody in-laws, and all Mori Marnie, father-in-law, could say, oh, what's the weather like up there, Nick? I can't imagine, and look, when I did my time, I was lucky. I avoided, you know, conflicts, so I was very fortunate. But I can't imagine what it would be in your situation to leave all the, the horror and the stress uh, and anxiety of the jungle patrols, and then suddenly you're on a plane, literally within a day, and you're back in society. Like when you say the Green Gate, I mean, I've drunk at the Green Gate, you've drunk at the Green Gate, it's a, it's a two minutes drive from my office where I'm talking to you now, and you, you, you're, you're back in civilization, and all these people are sort of fluffing on about what's important to them, you know, like, you know, what's the, and you're thinking, well, excuse me, what the F, you know, like what I'm dealing with is, is real. And you guys are just in fantasy land. I mean, how, how did you handle that? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I would just find it very, very testing. We had been subjected to extreme violence on a regular basis, on a monthly basis. You can't just project yourself forward to city life in, in, in Sydney. You're going through the motions of saying, hello to your family, um, toast to the bride, <laughs> you know, all this. You, you just go through the motions. I never returned to Sydney in my mind. It, it was surreal. It wasn't a good thing in hindsight to do. I don't think I would permit, if I was the CDF, any recreation from the war zone back into Australia. And I don't know if that happened through Afghanistan. I don't think it did. Two things never bring the soldiers back halfway through their tour. And the other thing is never, ever, ever embed journalists or let them anywhere near you when you're doing that sort of work. A photo journalist came to Nui Dat while I was there, took lots and lots of photographs and asked some silly questions. He was in the task force, not just. Someone burnt down his dark room, destroyed all his photographs and then punched him. Such was the hostility to the media. Because of what was happening back home, Remember, the painters and dockers wouldn't load the Centurion tanks unless their men were trained as tank drivers. They then stole thousands and thousands of dollars with spare parts and tools off the Centurion tanks while they're on the dock. The end result was the tanks didn't get deployed to Vietnam um, for months later. And the other was punch a postie when you go home. That postal strike to stop all mail going to Vietnam soldiers uh, I was ready to kill somebody yeah. other than a VC. Yeah, look, I, I'll just add to that. When our guys have gone to war, I say guys being, you know, men and women, have gone to war recently, it's quite surreal, I think, that they can be out on a patrol, come back, and then suddenly they're in the privacy of their own room, they pop their laptop and they can have a Zoom with their family at home as if they've never left home with regard to the contact. And I think that if you, you think how easy it is for them to communicate versus your communication with mm. was via the post. You would get the post when the mail call turned up. So if you came back 
pro probably a highlight of one of your patrols would be, besides the debrief and getting ha having a shower and getting out of the stinking gear and having you know some VBs, would be getting your mail and God willing there'd be some mail for you. So for the postal service to deny you guys that one connection with home, I'm with you. It's just disgusting. And, and other Vietnam veterans have voiced their, you know, anger about it and, and said this punch a posty situation. We were told not to wear our uniform in public at the height of the Vietnam protests. When I got back at the end of the year, I was spat at through walking through Hyde Park uh, with sneers and people making gestures that were unmistakable what the intent was. I just went back into the fold of um, khaki and green, went back into the army. We surrounded, as a professional soldiers, we didn't give the civilians any store except just keep out of my way. We got about our business. Yeah, I, I, I'm very sorry about that. And I think everyone acknowledges how wrong that was. You mentioned before, you get a few days off, you get home, and you don't even get that time to spend with your wife. How difficult was your relationship if you're a young guy and you're newly married and you don't even see your wife? Yes, we did tapes, reel-to-reel uh, -reel tapes and send those off. We couldn't send photographs. We couldn't send marked maps or anything of that nature. The real challenge came when Vietnam was over and we had to settle back down into normal regimental life. And then the long-term effects start to come out or don't come out. Before we get there, can we go back to that patrol that you mentioned earlier? Because a lot of our listeners, as Alex said originally, you know, many are military, but many are not military. And where you get onto your Netflix these days and everyone loves these, you know, bloody action and violent things, a lot mm. of people are interested to know not so much the gory, yeah, I suppose, I suppose the gory bit, the you know, the killing bit. Um, which is the sad part, and, and, and unless you've had to do it, you don't sort of have any appreciation of what it does to you. But can you tell us about those patrols and those incidents? One of the skills we developed in Western Australia at Swanbourne Barracks was hot extraction. A helicopter comes over, drops four ropes. Remember, we operate in five-man patrols. So if in the event we're in a firefight or in a situation we cannot escape, in other words, it's sort of like sending out your, your mayday. And that um, hot extraction by rope through the, the canopy was our mayday call. I had two maydays. Look, I, I might have difficulty coping in, in a moment. Um, so I go out on this patrol. We'd been told there was a lot of movement out in the northwest. And I was told to go and look and then ambush. So most of our patrol missions were reconnaissance followed by opportunity ambush. Occasionally we sent out specifically to do an ambush. I have here in front of me the original secret SAS patrol report from October 1969. They're available on the, at the War Memorial site. They've declassified them all. So I was able to print out all of my patrol reports. This was proved fortuitous when it came to dealing with DVA Department of Veterans Affairs in your claims. And I was able to say, well, look, at this time on this date, I did this. And, and here's the evidence in the form of the patrol report. At 7.30 in the morning, we were doing a resupply of water from a creek. So five mans, I'd send two people down to fill the patrol water bottles at a creek and the rest of stand guard. And we heard the sound of um, babies crying, female chatter and coughing about 40 metres away. Most of our 
engagements were in the anywhere between five and 15 metres. It wasn't some abstract type shooting scene. Uh, it's up close and personal. We also smelt cooking, burning wood and all that sort of thing. And I'd struck a large camp. After I finished my reconnaissance, I'd say there's probably 50-odd-ish people in this camp. So I thought, right, what the hell did I do? Now, in the case of Johnny Robinson's DCM, he came across a similar situation, lined up his five-man patrol abreast and charged through the camp, killing everything in its way. And on his way, he came across a 12.7-wheeled machine gun. Now, when you know your order of battle and you see that sort of weapon, uh, it's not carried, it's wheeled. You haven't just hit a Viet Cong patrol. You've hit some uh, North Vietnamese Army NBA, 33 NBA regulars. So Johnny Rob went through, turned them around, went through again, shooting everything on his way, and then pissed off and got a hot extraction. Extraordinary bravery. Some would say foolish, but obviously John made the decision based on the situation that was around him. So this camp was too big for me to do that. And I, I wasn't prepared to do a Johnny Robinson five abreast through a camp of 50. So I blew the thing up, the whole camp, with the aids of um, grenades, rockets, and I, I think I finished off with a 500-pound bomb from an aircraft. We were then tracked by those enemy for three days. I could not shake them off. They, um, it's, it's like hunting game. It's sort of fire into the bushes and, and see what bolts. So I can, and this is where you're, you're disciplined. You don't run, you just walk quickly, one foot in front of the other, and the leaves are falling down around you. Uh, they tended to shoot high, and we went to sleep that night, sort of. And there they were again the next day. And the next day, and in the end, I said, look, that's it. It's only a matter of time before we're caught. Um, so I called for a hot extraction. Now, on the patrols, we carried with us patrol cameras, binoculars, and, and secateurs, because to get a good observation post, you used to clip a peephole through the jungle or through the bushes so that you could see. I'm hanging under the rope, and one of my diggers pulls out his patrol camera. I don't know if you can see that. Yes, I, look, I, that's a fantastic photo. I'll... Alex will post that after. Yeah. That's, that's you. That's 200 feet above the jungle, coming out under fire. The gunships were firing down. The enemy were firing up, and I, I'm just hanging there. That's a hell of a shot, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's getting ready. That's the same patrol. Yeah. For some reason, I have a lot of photographs of that one patrol. You say you stop for night. You wouldn't sleep that night, I will imagine. You wouldn't sleep during the day. I mean, how long does the adrenaline keep you going? There was a book written by Andy McNabb called Sleeping With Your Ears Open. After a while, you train yourself. You can smell them, hear them, uh, the, the hearing, the slightest sound, and you learn to recognise what sounds what. So if you hear a, a certain clunk, I knew that was the safety catch coming off an AK-47. No two ways about it. You would, you would rest... Um, not all of us had rested at the same time, but we, we'd hold a picket. Remember, we were in the five, we were in a little circle. So we were so efficient. The Viet Cong called us the beer kick. And there's a book written by Dr. David Horner called Phantoms of the Jungle. It's out of print now. And we had a bounty on our head. If we were captured, we would have the worst of the worst done to us. You listeners can read up on what happened to some American special forces group when they were captured. So I always carried a little 32 sidearm. And uh, that was my father's from London. And um, yeah, take no prisoners, don't become a prisoner. You successfully 
prosecute this village and you know you inflict your your um fire on them and you call in air support thankfully i mean great blessing air support and the artillery support when it was available you're then trying to get the hell out of there and these guys are on you like bloody bloodhounds you're expending ammo as you fire on the village and as you retire i mean what was your ammo and supply getting to on those later days in the in the evacuation a very important point just to mention there it wasn't a village we were in an area that it was a, um, I suspect, NVA, because I, I thought I saw a khaki uniform at one stage. They operated in our area, and many of the battalions and certainly SAS patrols, we knocked heads with them several times over the years. But it was a camp. It, it was a unit on the move that happened to have a, a female and a baby in there. That's a very important distinction because it, it goes to the rules of engagement, which we didn't violate. As patrol commander... I always had to make absolutely sure who else was in the area, what civilians were in the area, what other friendly troops were in the area. And then we put down a uh, one square kilometre um, zone around our patrol area. So if you can imagine our patrol area is uh, three clicks by three clicks, we'd then extend that out to five by five. So we had a 1,000 metre buffer zone around us. And if anyone stepped into the buffer zone, proceed with caution. If anyone was in your zone, that's it. They're not supposed to be there. So you're absolutely sure there's, there's no Vietnamese civilians or it, it, we're right away from uh, any of the of that. So it, it wasn't a village. That's a very important distinction, certainly between us and the Yanks, how, you know, you would go out of your way to prosecute, you know, strictly military uh, matters as you were doing. So when you are trying to escape your pursuers, how were your supplies going? Because you're in charge of these five guys. You've got so much food, water and ammo left. How desperate was it getting? Okay, it, it wasn't a firefight from us because concealment is our friend. The jungle is your friend. I love the jungle, absolutely love the jungle. It protects you. It's your friend and you turn the jungle into your ally. We probably moved about 2,000 metres. By not, by not returning any fire and just head down, walk slowly, no sudden movements, practice your bushcraft as we'd been taught how to move stealthily and put as much distance as you can, change direction several times. How they knew we'd gone in a certain direction, I can only guess because of some of the ordinances we'd, we'd let go. They, they sort of knew we headed south. And I, I would say, yeah, a couple of clicks. Our communication back to base was on a, a ANPRC, Army, Navy, portable radio communicator, a radio called the 64 set. It was the size of a, of a house brick and it was CW, carrier wave, Morse code only. So to send a message for help, you had to break contact, form up a, an LUP lying up position, wait for it to be secure, then take a quarter wave antenna wire out and then your SIG, because in the patrol we had the scout, the commander, the SIG, the medic and the patrol 2IC down the back. So the SIG would get on there at about 40 words per minute. And we used OTLP, one-time letter pad, They're five-letter um, code groups. They're used in the diplomatic corps, totally 100% uncrackable. Not, not even today's computers could crack OTLP. So we used to carry OTLP codes with us. So we'd code the message up before we sent it. So we just sent five-letter groups. They would then have to formulate and encode a reply, saying time and place and all this sort of stuff. We would then decipher the code. So during com a communication stop for an SAS patrol on reconnaissance, 
is fraught uh, because, because uh, uh, you, you, we didn't have set phones. We, we didn't have uh, VHF um, communication. It was all bloody CW. Yeah, so that's how we got the message then. When we saw that we'd shaken them off, we said, right, come in. But there'd be one helicopter with the ropes and there'd be two Bushranger helicopters with um, uh, M60s. The miniguns came much later and they just put down suppressing fire. But you couldn't put down that much fire, but they couldn't shoot back. So, Nick, how did you, if you're in the jungle and, you know, we, we can picture a chopper coming in, you know, and then throwing the ropes down, how were you able to find a, a sufficient clearing to uh, be evacuated? First, all you needed was a, a gap in the canopy. A helicopter couldn't go down it, but they'd hoist you out and you'd then fly under the helicopter three, four, five k's, six k's until there was an opening. Um, they would then land, you would disengage as your feet hit the ground, you'd unclip off the rope. You either, um, I think we mostly jettisoned the rope because we didn't want to risk loose ends getting into rotors and stuff yeah. like that. Then we'd chopper, yeah. fly back to Nui Dat. I can picture the chopper with the four ropes and I see you on the ground in a five-man squad. Are you the last guy to be evacuated? I'll hold up this photograph. Now, what the photographs for your listeners shows is me hanging on the, the rope halfway through the extraction. Right out in the air, I might add. Oh, yeah, we're at about 300, 400 feet. You'll see just above my left arm there, there's a little loop in the rope. So the carabiner is clipped onto what's called a Swiss seat. It's a rapidly applied rope roping seat. Yes. We hook the carabiner onto that through a bowline, then the tail end of the, you see just above the rifle there, there's a large knot, a bowline type knot, and, and then another loop. So the fifth person, there are only four ropes could come down. So the fifth person would clip his carabiner onto the standing end, that's the part of the rope between my hand and the helicopter, and then slide down onto the knot. And it'd be like a couple of Russian kissing dolls. <laughs> You'd go up, pressed close together, face to face, and because the guys at students says, "Come on, skipper, kiss me, come on, kiss me." <laughs> you, you, you were literally six inches face to face, and and that's how the flow. So two on one rope and three on the other ropes. Now that little loop becomes significant a few months from now. Your listeners may have heard of David Fisher. He was one of my patrol members, but I'd loaned him out to another patrol sergeant. They had a hot extraction. And because there were only four ropes, Dave Fisher hooked on to that loop. He didn't go, he put a carabiner. And the end of the rope was just held by a bit of electrical tape to stop it flapping in your face as you flew oh. through the air. At about 400 feet, it gave way and Dave Fisher fell to his death. We then put a, um, a troop-sized patrol to go and look for him, never found him. With some help, we found him and brought him home about five years ago. He's the only guy I lost. Well, to your credit, you brought him home. Oh, yeah, it was others who brought him home, you know, 40 years later. That was the first part of Angus Horden speaking with Nick Howlett. Volume 2 is out tomorrow. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app and on social media to never miss an episode. We're on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTLPod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. You can contact us by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>